Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. that's Christian. Christian. Yes. What the f*** are you doing in Alberta? You traitors. Get the f*** out of this province. You don't belong here. Well, yes, that was the incident uh, that occurred over the weekend in Grand Prairie. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland uh, being targeted there by some uh, some pretty ugly anger and intimidation. My first reaction was just one of embarrassment. I was just embarrassed uh, as a Canadian, embarrassed as an Albertan at that. I think there's almost kind of a stereotype that's emerging of, uh, you know, a sentiment in Alberta that, that represents, it is represented by that. That, that kind of weird, unhinged anger. That was embarrassment. Concern at, at some level, too, here. I mean, we're at a bit of a precipice, I think. There's not much room for this to escalate now before we're into the realm of actual violence. You know, the one interesting bit in that, that little segment there is that when this guy first shouts Christy Freeland's name, her response is, is to reply, yes. Like, during the convoy protest, and a lot of people made the point that it would maybe help to defuse the situation if the prime minister had been willing to talk to protesters. Now, how that would work logistically, I think, was a legitimate question. But I also think there was some concern. You're going to send the prime minister out into these crowds. What's he going to encounter? Like, this guy wasn't there to talk to Christia Freeland. He was there to get in her face. He was there to intimidate her. And this could have really escalated. But she was willing to. He shouts her name. She stops and says, yes. And if he had any legitimate concerns, there was an opportunity there to, to make those heard. But this was about something else. Now, look, there, there's a lot of anger, I think, uh, at present in this country. Maybe some Canadians have legitimate reasons for feeling angry about certain things. And what was this guy so angry about? Well, the Taiyi, the website, the Taiyi reached him on the phone and he said, quote, why did I do that? Because I want the rest of the country to wake up and realize that she is a traitor to the country. She is selling out the country before he further descended into all kinds of conspiracy theories around the World Economic Forum. And this is something we're seeing and hearing more of in this country. And I think it's 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 something we need to pay attention to. And maybe it's something that needs to be pushed back on. Because it's one thing to be angry or upset about government policies or government policies you think are affecting you. And, and I think a lot of Canadians have legitimate concerns. But when people are descending to these depths of anger over conspiracy theories, we've got a problem. Because this isn't just I'm upset with the deputy prime minister because I disagree with the policies of a government. This is uh, I'm, I'm furious uh, I'm seething with anger at the deputy prime minister because I believe she's engaged in this this plot, this secret plot uh, to control Canada, to turn Canada over to this globalist entity, the World Economic Forum. It's a conspiracy theory that I think, unfortunately, is, has been gaining some mainstream traction in conservative politics in this country. 
And it's something that our next guest believes is the problem. Now, this was a piece that was written before this whole incident uh, in Grand Prairie. Uh, but you can read more at thehub.ca on why these conspiracy theories are a moral stain on conservative politics. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the author of that piece, Rudyard Griffiths, executive director of The Hub, thehub.ca. Rudyard, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, long time no talk. Great to be in conversation with you again, Rob. Indeed, likewise. Uh, you know, like I say, I mean, you, you wrote this piece before this, this incident uh, in Grand Prairie happened. But, you know, given this particular individual's interest in these, these conspiracy theories, what, what does this all represent to you? Yeah, just, uh, just days before this unfortunate incident. Um, I think two things to draw out of this. One, um, Rob, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of conspiracy floating around the internet, and uh, people are angry. They're feeling, um, you know, uh, that their lives have become very uncertain uh, economically as inflation kind of hits home, and they're they're out there looking for answers. And what's unfortunate is a lot of the answers they come across are just not grounded in fact. They're not grounded in reality. And the the danger here, I think, is twofold. One that people get amped up and they get you know captured by these conspiracies because they the power of a conspiracy is that it explains everything it takes all that uncertainty away you know it's the shortcut to making sense often of things that are really hard to make sense of or you know that certainly don't feel good uh in the moment so i understand the power of these conspiracies what i don't have a lot of time for are guys like the one we've just been talking about who are really hustlers. I think that's the thing that people have to understand, that when you're reading about these conspiracies, you're the product. People are making money off you in terms of your YouTube views, uh, in terms of eyeballs and attention that they're getting. This guy clearly staged this event. Oh, yeah. He's a rabble-rouser. He's, he's selling. Like, don't fool yourself into thinking that these people who are hawking these conspiracy theories aren't also selling you. They're selling you to Google. They're selling you to Facebook. They're selling you to Twitter. You are clickbait for them. And that's the thing I really want people to wake up to the fact is that the irony of these conspiracy theories is they claim to tell you the truth. They claim to pull back the veil on the great mystery, the one truth that explains everything. And in fact, it's just a shell game. It's just to lure you into their, in many cases, their business model. Some of these people, I'm not saying this guy, but a lot of these conspiracy theorists out there are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month off their content on YouTube, their websites, their subscription platforms. This is big business. And uh, don't be a sucker is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, that's an important point in all of this. Now, let's take a step back, because obviously the World Economic Forum exists. They've had this uh, annual gab fest in Davos for, well, forever, it seems. And yet we, we never really had these conspiracy theories bubbling around it. That, that changed recently for some reason. What's your sense of where, where this came from? Yeah, well, this is a, uh, another key point in my piece at uh, thehub.ca is that these conspiracies, you know, are often adopted to people for the reasons we just discussed. And what people may not realize is that just adjacent to 
what they might feel is their rather harmless belief that the World Economic Forum is some kind of entity that's setting out to control governments around the world, right beside that kind of stupid but innocuous belief is some really dark stuff, some stuff that's often very anti-Semitic. And if you, I don't urge listeners to do this, but if you're so inclined and you're an adult, go and start Googling World Economic Forum and the Great Reset. And very quickly, you're going to see George Soros and the Rothschilds. And as you go down the rabbit hole of this conspiracy, you'll start hearing about the worldwide Zionist conspiracy. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get into really ugly anti-Semitic attacks on, on Jews. And I think we know that anti-Semitism is rising around uh, Canada, rising around the Western world. And we know from our history, in times of economic stress, of economic uncertainty and economic trouble, hate crimes against Jews, Muslims, other visible minority groups, religious groups, these things take off. And I just caution people, you know, don't be... Again, don't be fooled into thinking this is all just harmless, that this is all just fun with conspiracy theories, uh, you know, on Google and Facebook. This stuff will lead you down to some very dark, dark uh, anti-Semitism, racism, discrimination, misogyny. And I would just say stay away from it, you know, just resist the temptation because you will, you can get radicalized maybe like this guy in Grand Prairie. And we all have that experience. We all know people over the last few years that have started to espouse some really crazy beliefs. And I think it goes back to these algorithms. It goes back to these platforms like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. They are designed to get you to click. That's how they work. That's their business model. And they will serve you up more and more outrageous stuff to hold you on those websites to get you clicking on content. Again, you're the product, you're the sucker. Resist this stuff because uh, it's polluting our democracy and it's tearing our society apart. In terms of what it's doing to, to the conservative movement, now, and, and look, and you're very careful to point out in your piece that you're not, not accusing Pierre Polyev of, of spreading these conspiracy theories or, or certainly not of being anti-Semitic, but you know, the, the concern that maybe if conservative politicians think that they can just sort of tap into some of this, they can use it to their advantage or they can somehow control this or, or push this into right, the right direction. Is it dangerous for conservative leaders to be, you know, playing footsie with this? Absolutely. And let, let me say, like, temperamentally, I'm I'm oriented toward conservatism. I like free markets. I like individual choice. I like personal freedom. But what I don't like is a presumptive leader of the Conservative Party, like Pierre Polyev, early on in this campaign, maybe when he was more desperate to win, coming up with this cockamamie policy that the ministers in his government, should he be prime minister, would not be allowed to attend the World Economic Forum. Now, you could say, that's innocuous. Who really cares? It's uh, the 1,001 problems facing Canada. It's 1,002. But why did he come up with a policy? I think he's playing footsie with these West conspiracists. He's giving a nod. And I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that he's unaware of the darker stuff that's out there that's attached to the West conspiracy, like the Great Reset, like all the anti-Semitism. But he has a responsibility as leader. If he wishes to be the prime minister of this country, that's about uniting Canadians. And I think that requires him as a condition of entry to renounce uh, West conspiracies publicly 
and to reverse, again, this bizarre policy that Canadian cabinet ministers would not be able to attend the forum. Because if he doesn't do that, I, I fear I can only come to one conclusion as a thinking person, which is that he's dog whistling, that he is playing footsie with the darker guys out there, like this idiot in Grand Prairie and other people that have even more possibly toxic uh, views. Uh, and that's unacceptable. I'm sorry, there are certain things in our politics that are beyond the bounds. And, uh, you know, uh, I wish Pierre would come out and make a statement, show some leadership on this, because this West stuff is getting out of control. Right. And does it need to be called out? Does it need to be denounced? Or can we just sort of try to ignore it and, and hope it all kind of goes away? Look, I think we have tried to ignore it. The reason I wrote this piece and the reason I think other people are starting to be concerned about WEF and this unfortunate incident with Christopher Freeland is exposing it, I think, to more people is a growing problem, is that we don't want to end up, unfortunately, like the United States finds itself right now, with QAnon and these really cockamamie crazy things that take the WEF stuff you know, to the next level, so to speak, yeah. because we want a viable, rational, conservative movement in Canada that can effectively oppose uh, the, the government and the agenda of, of the day, whatever the political strife that that may be. When we want effective competition in our democracy, that's how better ideas come about. That's how a better future for Canada is won. And if the Conservative Party is going to throw uh, the proverbial baby out with the bathwater and jump down these different rabbit holes. And Leslie Lewin is doing some very weird stuff, you know, invoking the Nuremberg trials from the Holocaust as somehow analogous to, you know, her opposition and a need for an investigation into vaccines. This is just reprehensible, irresponsible. Uh, it's embarrassing for the Conservative Party of Canada. As mentioned, that piece is up at thehub.ca. Some critical weeding uh, given everything going on right now. Rudyard Griffiths, always a pleasure. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Hey, likewise. Be well. You as well. Take care. That is Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director at The Hub, thehub.ca. You can find his piece uh, from last week. He's mentioned written before this incident in Grand Prairie on these conspiracy theories and why he believes it represents a moral stain on conservative politics. It wasn't an announcement that attracted a lot of attention at the time, but it was uh, an April 14th of this year. An uh, announcement uh, of a partnership between the federal government and something called the Community Media Advocacy Center. It's $130,000 in, in federal funding, so not a huge amount of money in, in that context. Uh, but the Community Media Advocacy Strategy, uh, the partnership was for this organization to launch a series of events called Building an Anti-Racism Strategy for Canadian Broadcasting. So in other words, this was somebody, uh, an organization, who was responsible for teaching anti-racism. Now, the press release issued that day quotes two people. Ahmed Hussein, the Minister of Housing and Diversity and Inclusion, and Laith Marouf, Senior Consultant for the CMAC, the Community Media Advocacy Center. Well, much has come to light about Mr. Marouf. And the federal government is on the defensive, as uh, the story uh, unfolded last week. Uh, funding to this organization has been suspended. 
Uh, the minister put out a statement saying anti-Semitism has no place in this country. The anti-Semitic comments made by Laith Marouf are reprehensible and vile. We call on CMAC to answer how they came to hire Mr. Marouf and how they plan on rectifying the situation given the nature of anti-Semitic and xenophobic statements. So yes, there's some pretty anti-Semitic, pretty ugly anti-Semitism that's been posted on Twitter and online by this particular individual. How was it then that this partnership came about in the first place? The idea that uh, we want to get to the bottom of why this organization hired this guy. I mean, this organization basically is this guy and his wife. He was front and center in the announcement. This is who you were hiring. Why was this not all obvious at the time? Uh, so the federal government, it seems, is trying to put the onus on this organization. But uh, clearly the federal government needs to answer to this. How is it then that, that somebody really seems to, to hold deeply offensive anti-Semitic views was put in charge of teaching anti-racism to broadcasters? So I, that there's a real need for some answers here. Uh, B'nai B'rith Canada is calling for an independent review of this whole situation. It doesn't seem like we, we've got the full story here yet. Joining us to, to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Marvin Rotrand, uh, National Director of the League for Human Rights for B'nai B'rith Canada, B'nai Marvin, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, uh, Rob, and thank you for the invitation to speak with you and your audience today. Uh, you've asked all the right questions, and uh, we're still waiting for all the answers on exactly these questions. First mm -hmm. of all, we may find that Maru's social media presence isn't really free speech, it's hate speech, and it may actually contravene the criminal code. And I think the more Canadians find out about, about this, the more shocked they will be. Uh, most Canadians... They see their country as inclusive, making a genuine effort to, you know, give opportunity to everybody in this country, building model of diversity for the world and um, trying to address, you know, unfair systemic obstacles and barriers that might exist. The word Canadians use often, we have to be fair to everybody. But that's not the vision that CMAC put forward. They see Canada as rotten to the core, needs to be uh, torn down. The language that Maroof used is also the language of CMAC. You'll see the words apartheid, colonial, colonialism, settler colonialism, all in there. And, you know, some of the people and some of the institutions we think are fundamental to our country, they think are uh, the, you know, core problem. I mean, they see the CBC as... Uh, as uh, the prime vehicles to spread racism in this country. I think you'll find few Canadians on the left or the right who might agree with that assessment. But this is not a pretty story, and the first objective should be to get Maroof out of there, and the second objective should be to get um, get all the answers. They did get $133,800 for six seminars. They held the first three in Halifax, Montreal, and Vancouver, and there's three more that money has been suspended but we're asking for more than that what we're asking for is the funds that have been dispersed to be reimbursed i'll get to that in a moment mm -hmm. we're asking for a new and better vetting process not just aimed at cmac and maroof but for you know a whole cottage industry of anti-racism groups that have grown up and many of which we think are questionable uh what we're seeing in Maroof's uh, social media, what we're seeing in uh, CMAC's uh, webpage and what we're seeing in their videos sounds like very much like what we read in a report a while ago on chaplains in the Canadian Armed Forces in which the 
report essentially attacked the Christian, Muslim, and Jewish religions and said the only chaplains should be uh, pagans and shamans because they're not patriarchal and, and their religions are much more inclusive. I think Canadians would have been offended had that received wider publicity, and I think they're going to be offended to find out that um, the criteria that are used are weak, and we're getting stuff like this slipping through all the time. Um, in Vancouver conference on May 14th, Maluf, Maruf actually made a three-minute anti-Israel rant as part of the official program. He called Israel apartheid. He denounced the Zionists conducting genocide. Um, and, you know, as such, that's part of the official program. And that it tells me that it's, it has no educational value. It needs to be withdrawn. So on the one hand, contracts like this are being given out, while on the other hand, the House of Commons came up with this recently, that the government of Canada thoroughly reject the demonization and delegitimization of the state of Israel and condemn all attempts by Canadian organizations, groups, or individuals, including university campus associations, to promote these views both at home and abroad. And that's a recommendation by the House of Commons Standing Committee on Public Safety and national security. So they're saying the right thing, but we're giving money to people who are, you know, fostering anti-Semitism uh, through anti-Zionism and who are insulting uh, a large body of Canadians. Uh, Maruf is not only an anti-Semite in his, his social media, media, he also attacked the black community, indigenous people who don't agree with him, all French Canadians who he called stupid and having an intelligence of less than, you know, 77 IQ and other groups as well. And yet he slipped through. There was no effective um, vetting process. Even a cursory examination would have caught him and would have caught that CMAC is basically him. Yeah, and interesting. I mean, he was actually uh, kicked off to, of Twitter at one point uh, yeah. because of how, how ugly this stuff was and then you know changed his, his username and, and came back again. Now, a lot of their, most of this that has come to light uh, was posted prior to April of this year. In other words, this stuff was all out there. Look, it's it's good that the minister has condemned all of this. It's, it's good that they've halted this partnership. But how on earth was all of this missed? Yeah, you, you, you asked absolutely the correct question. It shouldn't have been missed. A cursory examination of CMAC would have shown that it's a nonprofit founded in 2015, that the corporate address seems to be the same address as their main senior consultants, who are Leith Maruf and Gretchen King, who we believe is his wife. Um, the board seems to be symbolic, and it's the consultants who seem to run the firm. Uh, Gretchen King's name appears on the corporate documents that are sent in. So CMAC to us appears to be uh, Leith Maruf and uh, Gretchen King. And... Um, you know, they have, or he has, clearly enough of a history out there in social media. The red flags should have been immediately, immediately raised, and the contract should never have uh, gone forward. And some of the stuff that he said, I mean, it seems to be promoting violence, including shooting Jewish white supremacists and putting a bullet in their head. And, you know, things that are insulting to huge groups of Canadians while he constantly, and they constantly, try to break down what they claim is, you know, Canada's apartheid, Canada's this. Uh, Leithmer is a Syrian. I believe he's lived in Lebanon recently. He's just become a Canadian citizen two years ago, but I don't seem to share. 
any of the Canadian values that we cherish in this in this country, and that is inclusion and working together to solve problems. His line seems to really be to uh, an effort to uh, basically attack and target Jews and to insult other racial and religious minorities as well. And the evidence is clear enough. So at the very first, we're asking the minister to make sure that this group never works for the government of Canada again, that Maruf is persona non grata, that they try to get the funding back, but that the independent review find out how was there that problem that they got through. And are there other cases like that? You know, lurking at Heritage Canada is the anti-racism program now have such a fine line that racists are promoting, uh, you know, supposed anti-racism. What we have proposed is that the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism become part of the vetting process. Groups that are going to push an effort to victimize, demonize Israel as a way of attacking Jews um, should never, ever work for the government of Canada. There's a growing recognition that, you know, the effort to spread lies and hate aimed at Israel is a driver of global anti-Semitism, including here in Canada. Last year, uh, Rob, we, at B'nai B'rath, we do an annual audit. It was our 40th year audit. It was the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents that we ever, ever recorded, and that included 75 uh, cases of violence aimed at Jews. The previous five years combined had been fewer in less than half the number of incidents that we had in 2021. In Alberta, the number of incidents went up 55% in one year. That's because you started at a relatively uh, low level. In British Columbia, the number of anti-Semitic incidents went from 194 to 409 in one year. And so there's definitely a problem out there, and the problem is largely driven by hate aimed at Israel by anti-Semitic groups and hate groups across Canada. And this type of stuff feeds right into that narrative. It's a, what's so troubling to me, too, though, Marvin, is, you know, the, that, that, that this guy was so brazen about it. Like, you know, he wasn't trying to hide these yeah. views. I mean, he was, he was, you know, publishing them for all to see. And just the notion that, in his mind or his supporters, that you can be anti-semitic and somehow also be anti-racism as though racism is bad but being anti-semitic is okay or defensible like that that's really disturbing to me yeah it's it certainly is and i'm i'm afraid we're probably going to find out there's some other cases that are similar if not quite as egregious as this one and thus look I'm not taking any shots at the minister. As far as I know, he was alerted by a couple of members of parliament from the Liberal caucus, and he reacted. (laughs) The funding was cut, and uh, I I realize they're on the defensive. We've asked for the independent investigation. We've asked for other things. Um, A journalist uh, tried to reach me a few minutes before this interview to say that she's hearing that uh, you know, Minister Hussein's department is now actually, uh, you know, trying to consult the community on what the vetting process should be. If that's true, that is good and that is progress as well. But however, this situation is far from, from close. The Jewish community and others want to know how a failure of this magnitude was able to get through Heritage Canada. And do we need to look at contracts that have been awarded over the last couple of years? Are there similar uh, you know, situations in the closet waiting to come out that are going to discredit uh, the entire anti-racist program. How can we work to make it better? That's my short-term goal. Um, I know that people are using this as, you know, political, uh, as political stick to hit the minister, the political parties will, you know, fight all they want. What 
we're concerned about is making sure that public money is never used to spread anti-Semitism. In fact, what we need is a clear metric and guideline so that any future contracts clearly will actually target anti-Semitism and use the IRA definition. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll see where this all goes from here. Much more, as mentioned, uh, b'neighbreath.ca. Marvin, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate thank you, this. Rob, for the invitation. You have a good day. You as Bye-bye. well. All the best. Uh, Marvin Rotrand, uh, National Director of League for Human Rights with B'neighbreath Canada, b'neighbreath.ca. Yeah, they're demanding answers, reasonably so. Obviously, I think all Canadians should be demanding answers. So you're like, how the hell does this happen? If the government claims that you know public dollars should be used toward combating racism and discrimination... Well, this flies in the face of that. So you hold up uh, an organization or individual as, as an authority on the matter. And the whole time then, they're spreading garbage like this. That's counterproductive to say the least. So yes, the government has a lot to answer for, but this does speak to a, a bigger issue as well. When it comes to, I guess, what we would describe as maybe anti-Semitism on the left. And we are about the far right or neo-Nazis or where, where that resides or the Islamic extremism, where, where some of that comes from as well. But this almost falls into a kind of a different strain of, but still just as ugly anti-Semitism that, that exists on the left or the far left. Welcome back. Rob Regenridge with you here on this Monday afternoon. Uh, some encouraging news for Germany, for Germans in particular, uh, as they uh, brace for what could lie ahead in the winter months. And their energy challenges, uh, Germany's gas storage facilities are filling up faster than plants, according to that country's economy minister. So there's some optimism that uh, Germany could avoid some gas shortages this winter. Obviously, this all surrounds the whole situation with Russia, Germany's dependence on Russia when it comes to natural gas and Russia using uh, the whole situation right now in Europe to try to put some, some squeeze on Germany and other European countries. Uh, But, of course, Germany's chancellor was here in Canada last week. It was an opportunity to talk about whether Canada could be a part of the solution for Germany and for Europe in weaning them off of Russian natural gas, providing some alternatives. But obviously, it's not just Europe. There's been increasing global demand for natural gas. There's certainly a price advantage for Canada to be able to export its abundant supply of natural gas. Yet we, we haven't been doing so. Uh, there is one project, which is a pretty massive one in fairness, LNG Canada, which is uh, under construction, hopefully a couple of years or so away from completion. There's another one on the West Coast, the Wood Fiber LNG project that, that is supposed to be going ahead. And we'll see how that all plays out. And that's basically it. And there have been many other projects proposed. We just haven't moved on this. Now, by contrast, the United States built several LNG uh, export facilities. Australia has been really aggressive. In fact, Australia has become one of the world's largest LNG exporters. The real missed opportunity for Canada. Now, it's not too late, I, I don't think, to, to change course here, although it's, it's, in fairness, not the kind of thing that can address some of these short-term challenges in, in Europe. But joining us to talk about um, you know, the, the message that we've sent to the world in terms of uh, our reliability as a uh, global energy supplier and what lessons maybe we need to learn from this whole situation. Very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, uh, Heather exner Pirot, a senior policy analyst at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Heather, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks 
for having me. Obviously, this whole crisis in Europe, and in particular, the German Chancellor's visit last week, has, has refocused some of the conversation uh, around this issue. But do, do Canadians have a good understanding, Ding, at this point as to, to why we seem so far behind uh, other countries in this area? I, I think that they're starting to learn pretty quickly. I think, you know, more people know about how many projects have been, you know, proposed on the West Coast or the East Coast or the construction timeline of LNG Canada than certainly did a year ago. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a stark reminder that, you know, our allies are the people that have similar climate policies to us have been going ahead. The EU has categorized the natural gas as now a part of their clean energy uh, spectrum. And Canada is still far behind it and has not made any movements that would, you know, change what we were doing a year ago before the Ukraine war uh, to what we're doing today. Right. And, and this is where, you know, obviously what, what is... I guess ostensibly uh, about uh, market forces, supply and demand. I mean, obviously, it takes on additional geopolitical, maybe even environmental context. You know, given the the global situation. So, how does the government need to be approaching this in in terms of foreign policy and environmental policy? Does this need to be a bigger priority? Well, we haven't had much of an, an energy policy uh, for the last five, eight years, and I, this is not even just a, a liberal problem. I don't think we've been focused on it enough because mm-hmm. we, we had, you know, excess energy. It wasn't forefront of people's minds. But now we've been uh, in, in quite a spiral even before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. So now we have to start thinking about energy policy. It's not just it's not just a subset of climate policy. We actually need affordable, reliable energy for its own reasons. Uh, and we need energy security for its own reasons and and. You know, Germany is, is a warning shot to all the rest of us. And, and you know, we're equally reliant on, on China for a lot of the renewable energy components, the magnets, the transmission line, the copper, the solar panels. So this is a wake-up call to all of us that reliability, affordability, security still matters. As for the business case, though, the economics of it, because the prime minister raised some eyebrows last week when he suggested that there wasn't a business case for LNG exports, at least on, on the East Coast, exports to Europe. Now, you know, it seems to fly in the face of some of the projects that have been proposed and, and fallen by the wayside. But what did you make of that, first of all? Well, I mean, so it, it wasn't even true a year ago. Like you say, there have been projects proposed. There was one that was rejected in February. Uh, and it, and mostly Calgary companies have proposed this. Quebec has its own natural gas. Newfoundland has its own natural gas. You don't even need to pipe it from Western Canada. Although with today's prices, you certainly could do so profitably. Uh, but... Europe is, is paying, you know, the equivalent of five, six hundred dollars a barrel U.S. for their for their natural gas right now. So what, what might have been, you know, in a gray zone for profitability is now, you know, far, far into the black. Uh, you know, and, and the sad thing is Canada actually produces and exports more LNG or more natural gas story than Australia. But we pipe it all to the United States. So right now we are selling Alberta natural gas, the cheapest in the world. The United States and the United States sells it at a premium to its overseas partners because it has LNG export terminals. So other people are making money off LNG. Uh, just you know, poor us in Alberta, we're stuck with uh, giving out the lowest prices in the world. We are. In, in terms, so, and, and this was something you touched on in a piece you wrote uh, in the National Post about the message we're sending that when it comes not just natural gas either, uh, but other natural resources that are abundant here in Canada that other countries need, allies, friends of ours need, are willing to buy from us. And, and just kind of that message we're sending that we're inclined to just basically sit on all of this right now. What, what message does that send? Well, I appreciate you bringing that up. And, and this, is, this is the bigger concern here. You know, we can complain about Alberta natural gas prices, but 
the bigger concern is that there is not enough energy and there's not enough food in the world today because of our own making. Uh, and Canada happens to produce about everything that Russia is exporting in great quantities that we want to get you know, rid of the dependence on. And so, you know, we have the, the president of France, uh, Macron, saying the other day that it's the end of the age of abundance for France and for Europe. And here we are in Canada. We have everything that they need. Uh, but we just have such a hard time getting it through the approvals, getting the investment, and getting it out the door. It's not just LNG. It's not just oil and gas. It takes us 12 years to build a mine here in Canada also. So we, I think, I think we, we are complacent about natural resources. We thought that maybe that was something that you did in the 20th century. But here we're all being reminded that uh, we need all these products for our civilization too. And our European partners need it desperately today. Right. And, and I mean, look, there are environmental concerns. And you know, I don't want to sit here and say those aren't legitimate concerns. I, I do think that's part of what's guided government policy on this issue. But I mean, do you think there, there is an environmental case to be made that if, if, you know, natural gas is able to displace coal burning, particularly in, in Asia, that there actually is a, an environmental benefit to, to this kind of an approach? I appreciate you bringing that up, too, because what has happened countries won't go without energy. People will not go without energy. You know, economies would collapse. Households would, you know, go into, into poverty. So what they're replacing natural gas with in, in Europe and in Asia, I think people know this is coal instead. So, it, you know, I think we've made, uh, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good, as they say. And because we haven't been able to have, you know, BC LNG, the Botany Formation uh, Natural Gas, is probably the cleanest in the world. And so it should be it should be the first, you know, to use it and the last to stop using regardless. But until we can get off of coal, absolutely natural gas has a role to play here. And we'd be reducing emissions, global emissions, uh, if only we could get Canadian LNG out the door. But our government has been more concerned with our own domestic uh, emissions. And I want to add something to that. They just put a target out a few months ago after Russia invaded Ukraine that they want to reduce emissions by 42 percent, have a cap. There isn't room for a single LNG export terminal, a single natural gas, new natural gas pipeline with that emissions production cap. Uh, and so and so all of this is moot unless we figure out, you know, what does this policy entail and how can it include LNG and natural gas? Because right now it looks very uncertain that any new projects can come online. Well, so there's a lot of hurdles to overcome here. And I mean, we, we need to have some some investor certainty. We need to have maybe some... A uh, streamlined uh, process here, you know, to, to address the red tape. But ultimately, it all begins with with the political will. Then, it's, it's, so the barriers are not economic. The barriers are not technical or logistical. The barriers in Canada are political, um, and you know, it doesn't all lay at the feet of, uh, feet of Trudeau, but a lot of it does lay at the feet of, of the Liberals and their policies since 2015. But there's a lot of jurisdictional barriers. Um, a lot of you know, there's a risk coming from a lot of places. So. This is what people have to understand. When you put billions of your own money, you know, into a new LNG project or into a mine or into anything in Canada, knowing that, for example, you know, Minister Gibault, who used to be a Greenpeace activist, is the person that needs to approve it, uh, or that it's not certain that it'll comply with the Impact Assessment Act, or it's not certain that it'll comply with the emissions reduction target. So there are a lot of headwinds against attracting investment, and these projects cannot be built without that investment. Much more is mentioned at McDonaldLaurier.ca. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for the insight. Appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for the invitation. All the best. Heather exner Perot is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute, mcdonaldlaurier.ca. You can find her latest piece on, you know, the, you know, the perception maybe that Canada are, we're hoarders, I guess, when it comes to resources.
Maybe that's how we're, we're being seen increasingly by allies, allies that need energy, allies that need food. What are we doing to provide it? There's a benefit to us here as well. As she says, it's political, which to me also raises an interesting question here, right? Obviously, Alberta does not and cannot export LNG. We have natural gas, but in terms of the, the whole process of converting it, the storage, the shipping, that can't happen here. Now, we do have LNG Canada. The, the wood fiber project is mentioned. Uh, we, we need others. We should already have others. But these are policy failures. I think there's, there's an unfortunate and I think a mistaken tendency in Alberta to view this as uh, you know, structural failures in this country or constitutional failures in this country. That's not the problem. There was a major court decision in late 2019 upholding the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, which is a key part of the, the LNG Canada project. And basically, the argument being made by some of the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en and their supporters was that federal law should not apply there. And, and the court said, well, no, that, that's, that's not how this works. So ultimately, I think that certainty, that rule of law the, the federalism, the federal jurisdiction, the constitution side of it, that's the part that's been working. We saw it with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That was upheld by the courts. Is it really in Alberta's best interest right now to sort of take a blowtorch to all of that, to deliberately create constitutional upheaval, to, to put on the table or normalize the idea of nullification, that other jurisdictions can just reject federal jurisdiction or just reject that constitutional order. LNG Canada would not be happening if that were the case. The Trans Mountain Pipeline would not be happening if that were the case. And I think the same would be true of any other project that, that is proposed. Now, at the moment, yes, the political reality has not changed. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Well, that's uh, from one of the most famous speeches of the 20th century, given by one of the true giants of the 20th century, Sir Winston Churchill. And, and look, I mean, you know, the history speaks for itself. He was a crucial and pivotal figure in turning the tide against and prevailing over Nazi Germany. And the world would have been a very different place had Winston Churchill not been there, right? So I think that that is, is more or less objectively true. And it's a reason why uh, Sir Winston Churchill is someone who is still celebrated to this day. In this country, there are numerous um, streets, parks, buildings, etc. It's a school in Calgary, of course, uh, named after him. And we're going to add to that last week the announcement uh, that a statue uh, to commemorate Sir Winston Churchill uh, will be constructed and displayed at McDougal Center in downtown Calgary. Now, obviously, you know, there, there's, there are a lot of important figures from history and not everybody is statue worthy. And I think as we've seen with other statues or other historical figures, there can be a debate about, um, you know, the warts, as it were. And obviously no political leader uh, of any generation, of any time period uh, was, was perfect. And Winston Churchill, like those others, certainly had his flaws. So I suspect there will be some debate about whether this particular individual is worthy of this particular honor. And 
Uh, you know, unfortunately, we've seen elsewhere where, you know, people take matters into their own hands if they don't feel someone is statue worthy. And we, we've seen other statues uh, of other historical figures elsewhere in the country toppled. And hopefully this, this is, doesn't have to get to that point. But joining us to talk more about this project, why it's uh, important, where, where things are at in terms of when we'll finally see this. Uh, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Mark Milkey, who, among other things, is president of the Sir Winston Churchill Society of Calgary. He's involved in, in this project, this announcement. Uh, Mark, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, Rob. Okay, so give us an overview just in terms of, you know, where we're at with this project, uh, where, where the money's coming from to, to pay for it, all of that side of it. Sure. This project started about four years ago when we thought at the Churchill Society of Calgary um, that it was time to uh, commemorate Churchill in a different way in Calgary and in a new way. And we raised $300,000 over the last four years. Uh, this is all privately financed. There's no taxpayer you know, dollars being harmed uh, in the construction of the statue. And, in fact, we will give money to the province for maintenance uh, of the statue going forward and for the base and the rest of it. So um, we hired a, an arch- a sculptor, rather, out of Winnipeg after a competition, uh, sorry, Edmonton. Got my cities next up, my artistic cities today, uh, out of Edmonton, Danik Mazdensky. Danik Mazdensky is a fabulous sculptor. He's sculpted images of Lois Hole, statues of Nellie McClung, and jazz artist Clarence Horatio Miller, among others. Also, uh, there's a statue of Lester Pearson on Parliament Hill that was sculpted by Danik Mazdensky, this Edmonton sculptor. Um, so this is a work of art. Um, so that's where the statue is at in the plasticine version, which is about one and a half times the size of Winston Churchill. So about eight and a half feet is my understanding, is in the process of being bronzed right now, just south of us in Montana for various reasons. That was the best foundry to go with, but it was created in Edmonton and sculpted in Edmonton by Danik, the sculptor. Uh, and, and on the cost? Um, again, it's about $300,000 all in. That's what we budgeted okay. for the sculpture, um, for the upkeep and the maintenance. We will be donating uh, money to the right. province of Alberta, not the other way around. Yeah. So what, what is the involvement of, of the province then here? Well, the province has provided the location. So McDougall Centre is excellent. Not everyone will know McDougall Centre, but it's a marvelous um, old school building in downtown Calgary that's now used as the southern base for the provincial government. The offices uh, are there for the premier, for the cabinet, um, regardless of which premier cabinet happens to be in power. So it's been the centre in southern Alberta of, of the provincial government for some time. And there's a wonderful location, the south lawn of McDougall Centre, which is where the statue will be put up uh, next spring. Uh, the South Lawn is actually uh, tied to Churchill in this way as well. When he came to Alberta in 1929, he loved the scenery. The more he came west in Canada, he loved the scenery more and more, and he particularly loved, Churchill did, uh, the south and the west of Alberta. So he went south to Turner Valley, to the Prince of Wales Ranch, um, loved the scenery at the Prince of Wales Ranch. He went to the Rocky Mountains, Banff Lake Louise, Emerald Lake, and the rest. And so the statue will be facing south towards Turner Valley and Prince of Wales Ranch and also towards the mountains, so southwest, west to, to the Rockies, where he also painted several paintings. Um, some of your listeners may know that um, Churchill took a, took a break from the seriousness of life and politics and everything else he was involved in over the decades to paint. It was his uh, break, his release um, from the um, the burdens of life, and he was actually quite, uh, quite a good painter. And in fact, one was uh, sold back to uh, the local gallery, a master's art gallery, about four years ago now, uh, painting that he he, um, that Churchill did at Emerald Lake. Right, and yeah, and, and he, he visited uh, this province there. There was that connection too, isn't there? Well, 
the interesting thing is that Churchill loved uh, Alberta, and he spent a week here out of a month-long tour in Canada. He spent more time in Alberta than in any other province, and he'd heard about it, which I didn't know. Uh, there's a great book by Bradley Tolpanen, an American author, on Churchill's three-month tour of North America, and he devotes a good section of it to the visit uh, to Canada, all the cities he visited, uh, but in particular to Alberta as well. And uh, one of the things, I mean, this resonates perhaps today with those of us who think the energy industry is a good thing. Uh, Churchill visited Turner Valley, was enthused with the oil development that was just occurring there, thought the distant imperial capital of London uh, ignored it to its peril. Um, I mean, insert your joke about the distant colonial capital of Ottawa these days. But uh, Churchill actually favored the oil industry, uh, planned to buy shares and did. Uh, His son, who was 17, Randolph Churchill, was a bit snotty about all of this, looked around and saw kind of a dirty industry as it's still accused of being of today, but it really was back then with natural gas flaring off the top of oil wells and the rest of it. Um, His son, Randolph Churchill, gets a bit snooty about the lack of culture in Alberta at the time, and oil men and their lack of culture. Winston Churchill turns to his son and says, uh, quote, that uh, cultured people are merely the um, the, the glitterized scum floating on the uh, sea of commerce. And what he meant by that was you need money before you can have the culture that Imperial London, of course, had in his heyday. And uh, you need you need money before you can provide the art and the rest of it and the culture. So, uh, And his son thought the retort was very good. So uh, Churchill has a natural connection, I would say, to southern Alberta. And, of course, you have to uh, think about what Churchill meant to the world starting in May 1940, including Canada. Uh, we were, of course, one of the first countries to declare war in Nazi Germany along with Great Britain. And there are stories there as well in terms of Churchill's uh, fondness for Canada. But when you think about what Churchill meant to the world, absent Winston Churchill in May 1940, uh, I think what would have happened is quite clear from the history books that Lord Halifax or another more appeasing politician would have taken power, would have negotiated a peace treaty with Nazi Germany. Europe would have been divided between the Nazi Empire and the Soviet Empire under Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. Imperial Japan would have had the run of Asia, and we know what they did there, the rape of Nanking and the rest of it. Uh, We know what the the Imperial Empires did um, in Asia and in Europe. And the world would have been divided between tyrannies with Canada, the United States, who knows how many other countries, Great Britain if it survived, islands in a sea of tyranny. So that's the importance of Winston Churchill for many reasons and other reasons to the world. But again, in Canada, and in Alberta in particular, um, there are some some real interesting local connections is the best way to put it. Right. And, and you know, as I alluded to, I mean, obviously, we have a school in, in Calgary named uh, after uh, Churchill. There's Churchill Square in Edmonton. There's, there's other buildings or streets elsewhere in Canada that are in his honor. So I think we, we've long accepted that, yes, this is someone who is worthy of that kind of recognition, that kind of honor. So why a statue? Well, I, I think it's important to remember history, and I'm not sure people today do, uh, the vast majority of the population. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration. But I think uh, you see the Ukrainian president, for example, Vladimir Zelensky, mm-hmm. referring to Churchill repeatedly in the last six months since his country was invaded by Russia. And uh, one of the reasons we decided to proceed with the statue project is because um, one has to remember history. It's a cliche that if you don't, you'll, you know, you'll 
commits the same mistakes others have committed in history, but the cliche happens to be accurate. So what we wanted to do is say, look, here is a, the most consequential statesman of the 20th century. He had a deep connection to Alberta. He even threatened only half-jokingly. Um, he wrote his wife Clementine to say he would move to southern Alberta and buy a ranch um, with Clementine if Neville Chamberlain ever became prime minister. Uh, Chamberlain, of course, did become prime minister. It was a disaster, and Churchill thankfully stayed in his own country and took over as prime minister from Chamberlain in May 1940 and bucked up the British. Um, well, frankly, he you know, and, and the rest of us, again, Canada was an ally early on, while the rest of us waited for other entrants into the war, including the Americans, who, of course, you know, by virtue of their massive population, I think made the, uh, the difference in terms of the war. I think that's generally acknowledged. And then the Russians came later. Um, but nonetheless, um, Again, the, the reason is very simply it's important to, I think, remember an historical figure and the lessons of history and, frankly, what, it, what a leader Churchill was. Um, without getting into you know, names these days, I don't think we are exactly blessed with terrific leadership in Canada or around the world at the political level. And I think that's unfortunate uh, because Churchill fought for democracy, for individual rights, for freedom. There's a long record. He's, he's often accused of being a racist, which I think is too strong. He had a few prejudices of his era, but he's, he wasn't a racist. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. I mean, he turned down the Americans when they wanted to segregate troops. Early on in his career, he fought for equality for black South Africans. He praised um, the you know, expansion of the population in India under British rule. He was proud of that. Um, this, this man was not, as some would like to accuse of, uh, him of being a, a racist. He was farsighted. And frankly, he did fight the prejudices of his era. Anti-Semitism was a completely acceptable prejudice among uh, British peoples, especially the upper classes of which he was a part, in the 30s and the 40s. He fought it tooth and nail. Uh, and long before uh, Adolf Hitler came along. So uh, the leadership of Winston Churchill, uh, the issues that he fought for, uh, I mean, several years ago, uh, to give you one last example, <clears throat> there was a sign lo held aloft in Hong Kong. There were students and others protesting the imposition of martial law, the restriction on democracy in Hong Kong, all the things we know now that the, the regime in Beijing has done. These students and others you know, hoisted aloft this sign that said, we shall never surrender. And it was in Cantonese and in English. I mean, what does that tell you about who Churchill was? So we thought it was important to, frankly, put about a physical remembrance of Winston Churchill, um, again, in part because of his record around the world in his career and what a difference it made to the 20th century. It would have been a very different century without him and his connections to Alberta and southern Alberta and Calgary in particular. And let me ask you this, Mark, because it, it shouldn't deter us, either it's the right thing to do or it isn't. But as you've seen recently, statues seem to have become a bit of a, a political flashpoint, maybe because of the inherent symbolism that we've seen statues of political figures toppled or, or splashed with red paint, that sort of thing. Are, are you concerned or should we be concerned that, that this could become that, that kind of a flashpoint? Well, the possibility is always there, I suppose, but it would be very unchurchillian of the Churchill Society to not do this because of a fear. And in addition, I would, I would think most Albertans understand this and would be supportive of this, this statue project. Again, it's not costing taxpayers a cent. We are giving this. Uh, you know, from the Churchill Society of Calgary, which is sponsored debates, sponsored moot court um, debates, uh, you know, and, and just started an art scholarship at the Alberta University of the Arts. This is something we've done at the Society. We want to give back to Calgary, to Alberta. So it's also 
a work of art. And I think most Albertans understand that um, an historical figure, uh, you know, who frankly promoted freedom and flourishing in his own age and had these connections to Southern Alberta, I would think most Albertans reasonably get that this is important. And I would just hope that maybe the atmosphere will have changed by the time this goes up next spring. I think it's already changed in the past six months with the Ukrainian president and his de facto, not de facto, real endorsement of who Churchill was. I would hope people are sobering up a little bit. Um, I mean, no historical figure is perfect, and that, that always comes up. But we're not perfect, and 100 years from now, Rob, people are going to look at views that you and I held and think, how could we possibly have held those, whatever those may be? So uh, the key question for me on historical figures, because it's a legitimate question, who should we commemorate, who should we not, is did they contribute to freedom and flourishing in their own age? If we're talking about Civil War, Southern Confederate generals in the Civil War fighting to protect slavery, retain slavery, the answer is no. If it's Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Chairman Mao, uh, who repressed their populations and killed them and murdered them, the answer is no. If it's Winston Churchill, who is the very opposite, then yes, uh, you know I think whatever warts he had, you and I, you and I have them as critics have them. Um, you celebrate his freedom and his flourishing, and frankly his his record over his 50-year political career. Um, which includes everything from advocating for the left out millions, as he called them, advocating unemployment insurance, advocating for pensions, fighting against racism in South Africa, fighting actually for Muslims in India when that was not a popular thing to do because he thought they were oppressed by the majority population. So nuanced figures. This is the historical discussion that we at the Churchill Society thought was important to have by proposing this, because it leads to conversations like this, where you remember that it, these are not cartoon, character, uh, cartoon characters of history. Winston Churchill um, had many, many positive uh, elements to him, to say the least. And so, that, again, that's part of why we thought this was a good time to, to do it, despite the fact it's contrary. And yes, there's, there's a risk. Someone will throw red paint on it one day. All right, we'll leave it there. Mark, uh, appreciate the update, the conversation, and uh, we'll continue to watch this uh, you know, as, as this project moves forward to completion. But appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Anytime. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Uh, there you go. Mark Milkey, he is president of the Sir Winston Churchill Society of Calgary. An update uh, on this uh, statue project, where it's at and why it's happening. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.